Okay. Well, it's good to see you guys. I missed you last week, um, and uh, but Caleb said he had a great time with you guys. <laughs> so we're back. We're going to be in Deuteronomy this morning. Um, and by the way, I guess none of you, maybe some of you were in there, but we we have 27 babies. I just wanted to, I, I shared this with them, but you guys didn't get to hear that. But we have 27 babies either have been born or, or are expected to be born before the end of this calendar year. That is incredible. This is crazy. We're going to need a way bigger building. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, and it was neat. We just, uh, we just had the parent-child dedication, and we had 12 families, 13 babies uh, come and, and dedicate to, to raise their children and, and uh, discipline instruction of the Lord. It was, it was, it was neat. So, but anyway, just keep praying for our church. This is uh, such a, a wonderful blessing to have all these little children running around, which we're going to talk about when we get to Deuteronomy 6. Uh, so I've been with us. We've been studying. Actually, we haven't even really cracked open the book of Deuteronomy. We've been doing a background of the book of Deuteronomy. We talked about the first week, who wrote it, when he wrote it, all that sort of stuff. This is written by Moses. Um, and uh, as soon as uh, before they enter into the promised land, uh, we gave an outline of Deuteronomy. And then after that, we looked really at a brief overview of Genesis through Exodus and then Leviticus and Numbers because it is assumed uh, by Moses as you're you know, reading this, uh, this book that you understand what they just walked through, where they came from, what God said, what they've been doing. Uh, the whole um, the, the the covenant of Abraham, the deliverance from uh, Israel through Moses's leadership, and God's choosing him, building the nation in Egypt, bringing them out, and now they're on the plains of Moab, and they're about to enter into the Promised Land, and he is reiterating or renewing this covenant that God made with them at Sinai with the first generation. And so, all that being said, um, we're going to kind of. Uh, some of that will be reviewed a little bit today because it's in the text, but this is actually the first week we're busting open the book, looking at the actual text. So today we're in Deuteronomy 1, beginning with verse 1, so if you want to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy, and I'm excited about this. Uh, it's already been a joy uh, reading this book over and over and over. Uh, I've never uh, done uh, an exposition of an Old Testament book, too, so this is an exercise uh, relearning Hebrew because it's been a long time, uh, but this is, uh, it's, it's this quote up there a couple of weeks ago, and like I said, this is why uh, the, the premise of why we did the review that we did, but MacArthur, and uh, uh, I can't remember where I got this quote now, uh, talks, talking about Deuteronomy, says the book assumes the reader is already familiar with the four books that precede it. In fact, Deuteronomy brings into focus all that has been revealed in Genesis to Numbers, as well as its implications for the people as they entered the land. So again, that's why we looked at Genesis through Numbers, because you need to know what is happening there. And uh, if you understand the narrative, you understand the covenants that have been made, and you understand what God has sworn that he must do, because he made this unilateral covenant with Abraham uh, hundreds of years before, then it makes all of the text make a lot more sense. We also, right before this study, we were in 1 Corinthians 10, and in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talking about uh, the Israelites uh, and in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 6, and then 11 and 12, Paul says to the church, referring back to Israel, specifically referring to this time period in Israel's history, he says these things have happened uh, to them as examples for us. 
So when we read the Old Testament, we're not reading the church back into the Old Testament. We're not taking the world Israel, replacing it with church, applying all these things to us like that. That's a misunderstanding of how to, uh, to, to, to study and to interpret the Old Testament. But one of the things that is very clear is that when we read the Old Testament, these things are written for our instruction, uh, for us to understand who God is, what his promises are, what he's doing, uh, for us to see the things that Israel walked through, the, the things that they practiced, the character of individuals and the nation as a whole, because nothing has changed in the sense of human nature. Uh, nothing has changed when it comes to the promises and covenants of God. And so Paul r- tells the church, these things have happened to us as examples, and then he gives the purpose statement, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So as you see Israel grumble and complain and die in the desert and all that sort of stuff, he's saying, don't, don't think highly of yourselves and think that you're different or better than them. We're built in the same way. He also says these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And that's really the, the gist of what Paul was trying to tell the church. You can't look back at these stories and these people and you see their faults and you see their grumbling, you see their complaining, you see how they turn so quickly to idolatry and those sort of things and think that you're not susceptible to the same thing. We are built like them and we will do the same thing that they did if it were not for the grace and power of God and if it weren't for him sustaining us and if we disregard his, his commands. That's what Shane talked about in there. Uh, we all think we have some sort of authority that we don't. And uh, when we become uh, presumptuous, when we become uh, arrogant uh, and, and we don't submit to what the Lord says, then we start heading, we're, we're running down the same pathway that the Israelites ran down. Um, and again, you can look at them, you can be like, I mean, they saw the Red Sea parted, they saw the miracles in Egypt, they did, I mean, they witnessed the presence of God and the fire and the cloud. For 40 years, their sandals never wore out. He always took care of them, all that sort of stuff. And you would think, how could they do that? Well, they did it in the same way that you do it now that you have the full revelation that God has given to mankind in your hand, sitting on a nightstand every day, and you fail to submit to it, you fail to read it, you fail to obey it. You know, so again, it's never think highly of yourselves. Look at these things as examples and go, okay, <laughs> I got to flee from idolatry. I got to run towards Christ. I need to be submissive. I need to be obedient. I need to love him and love others the way that he loves us. I mean, that's going to be overall the application again and again and again. And you're going to see that throughout this, this book. Um, at the very end uh, of Deuteronomy, we talked about this. Deuteronomy is, is not a new covenant. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a renewal of, of the covenant that God made with Israel in Mount Sinai or at Mount Horeb uh, to the second generation. The first generation who uh, said that they would obey him, that they would listen to all the commands that he's given them, they would be his people and all that sort of stuff. They have died now during the 40-year uh, judgment in the desert as they were wandering around because of their uh, disobedience to the Lord, their grumbling and their complaining, their idolatry. And now their children, who they complained about and said, we're going to die in the desert, God is bringing their children into the land. And now they're on the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan. They're going in to take the land that God promised to Abraham. And God's going to give them the land that he swore to give to them. And Moses is renewing with this new generation that, you know, all these, everyone here would have been 20 years old or under 20 years old 
or born in the desert when they came out of Egypt. Does that make sense? So they're under 20 when they came out of Egypt, or they were born over the last 40 years. So you have a new generation, and now they are going to be the ones responsible for these commands of God as they go in. And Moses says that this should happen over and over and over with each generation during Israel's uh, stay in the land. In Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 13, it says Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place where he will choose, he says this, You shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. And, and, and the point we made when we read through that is that Deuteronomy is an exposition of the law of God, the Mosaic Covenant given to Israel that should have been read every seven years to the nation of Israel and the nation as a whole, which should have then uh, basically come before the Lord and said, we commit to follow him and to obey his instruction, and uh, just like they're doing here in Deuteronomy. So this is, uh, this is a historical event that is happening over a one-month period on the plains of Moab, but it's something that Israel should have practiced every seven years as a nation in the land. And you know that didn't happen. I mean, you, as soon as Deuteronomy is over, Joshua takes the land, but as soon as Joshua dies, you just judges as one of the saddest books in the whole Bible as the Israelites immediately reject the Lord. But again, don't think too highly of yourselves. Um, and so he says, assemble the people, the men, the women, the children, the alien who's in your town, so they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn and fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land. So again, that there's the direct application to us is the same. We must be teaching our children every single thing that he has said in his word that we know about his son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for us and bore our sin on the cross and paid the wrath that we deserve. We need to be exemplifying that in front of our children and teaching the next generation. And then as we grow into adulthood, into maturity, we are committing to uh, follow Jesus Christ and to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And in that sense, it's the same sort of thing. So again, a lot of these things have application to us as the church, Many things in Deuteronomy uh, are reiterated in the New Testament. The Lord, Jesus Christ, quotes Deuteronomy frequently, um, and, and all of those have direct application. But there are many things in Deuteronomy that you're going to see that applied only to the nation of Israel back in the day uh, that have been fulfilled in Christ, uh, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, that we're no longer under the law as Israel was under the law. Um, and so we'll try to make those distinctions along the way too so it doesn't get confusing. All that being said, here we go. Deuteronomy 1, and, uh, and I'm calling this from Horeb to, uh, oh wait, here it is, from Horeb to uh, Kadesh Barnea. And basically, in chapter 1, Moses is going to begin to describe to the second generation, uh, basically, uh, the journey from, from Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai, uh, to this, to Kadesh Barnea, which is the first place where the Israelites were, if you want to say it this way, supposed to go in and take the land. They sent the 12 spies out, and they came back, gave a bad report, and Israel, that's where the judgment of God came, and the, they had to wander the desert for 40 years. But in this first chapter, Moses is reminding uh, this second generation of the events that happened and what the Lord has said. And so if you look at the first five verses, we're calling these first five verses the precision of exposition. The precision of exposition, because in in these first five verses, you have some very precise things, and and the Lord wants us to understand uh, what is being said, when it's being said, to whom it's being said, 
uh, where they're at, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we've already said this before, Deuteronomy. Uh, it's a series of sermons by Moses. Three, basically three sermons by Moses within a one-month period of time on the plains of Moab before Moses dies and Joshua takes the Israelites into the promised land. Uh, the last few chapters probably were written by Joshua. This is the, basically recalls the, the, the death of Moses and, the, and, and Joshua um, uh, res, uh, assuming leadership uh, for the nation of Israel. But it is a series of expositions by Moses reviewing the history of the nation of Israel, everything that happened from Exodus to Numbers very quickly to this new generation, challenging the new generation of Israelites who will soon enter the promised land to faithfully uh, to live faithfully to the covenant that Yahweh, their God, has made with them. That's the point of this book. And so th- this is, like I said, the way I think of this is it's a review and a renew uh, a renewal of the, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel. Uh, and it's a second-generation exhortation. He's exhorting them to fear the Lord, to submit to what he says, to go and to take the land. The Lord has given you the land. Do not fear the people, but make sure you trust the Lord um, and, uh, and not in your own understanding like your father's. The recipients of this book, like we said, is the second generation of Israel. Um, these are the ones uh, uh, who would have actually... Um, it, every, every one of this second generation that would have come out of Egypt and actually seen the plagues, watched the Red Sea part and all that, they would have been under 20 uh, because, you know, it was all the, the, the ones that were accountable were the ones 20 and over that were numbered uh, when they came out of Israel. And so they would be 40 to 60 years old at this point, uh, and their children would have been the ones that were born in the desert. And so now you have a whole new generation of Israelites. And so if you read the first two verses, here's how Moses starts his first exposition, or it starts the the book. It says, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, and Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It's 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So it's really important to understand where we're at and what's going on because it helps you as we read the rest of the book to, to see. He's going to refer to these over and over. And we've already talked about that. We went through uh, Genesis through um, Numbers and looked at some of the main places. They're going to be mentioned over and over and over. But here gives you a, I want to give you a picture of, of what is going on here. Um, the, the first thing, actually, before I give you these name places, he says, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel. Uh, the, the, the text here is, like I said, very precise. He, he basically talks about what is happening, who is speaking, where he is speaking, when he is speaking. The per, uh, and, and this is a precise moment of the Lord's choosing and a precise moment that Israel should always remember as they go back and they read this text over and over and over again. One of the first things that stands out is he says he is speaking this to all Israel. And you'll see this throughout uh, Deuteronomy and throughout the Old Testament. But at the beginning of each of these discourses of Moses, it says that Moses was speaking to all Israel. In Deuteronomy 1, the beginning, and when we looked at the outline, Deuteronomy 1 through 4 is one exposition, and it starts out with what we just read. Deuteronomy 5 begins the second exposition, and it says, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Deuteronomy 27 begins the next exposition, and it says, Moses and Levitical priests spoke to all Israel. And the Deuteronomy 31 uh, is, is the, the ending or the, the, um, that, that talks about the death of Moses and the song of Moses and all that. 
And it says, so when Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and when all Israel comes to be, uh, appear before the Lord your God, and the place you'll choose, you'll shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. The reason I wanted to bring that up is because the way that all Israel is used every single time, 100% of the time in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's always referring to the nation of Israel. It's not saying every single individual in Israel, but it's a collective call to the nation as a whole. So when all Israel came out to hear, the nation collected to hear these words. When all Israel picked up stones to stone someone, it means the nation collectively in unity affirmed the, the death penalty for this person. And does that make sense? So again, it does not mean, because this is what some people bring up, when it talks about in Romans 9 that all Israel will be saved, it doesn't mean that every single person that has his heritage from Abraham will be born again. It definitely does mean that the nation must, as a whole in unity and harmony, repent and be restored and saved. Because that's always its usage throughout Scripture. 250 times in the Old Testament, 12 times in Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, 150 times in the Bible, 12 times in Deuteronomy. It always is a means of either addressing the nation or talking about the national unity. It's talking about the nation When you get to Daniel and you begin to talk about the end times and Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks of the Messiah and the return of Jesus Christ, whom we know is uh, his name now because of New Testament revelation. Again, he talks about all Israel. The the, the Messiah is the one that will save all of Israel. Malachi um, 4, 4 through 6 is the same thing when it talks about the prophecy of Elijah who will come and restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. Uh, We know this is a a precursor to the Messiah. John the Baptist was the Elijah, but then there will be another Elijah that will turn the hearts and Israel will repent and be saved. And when we studied Revelation, we talked about that. But again, all Israel will hear these, these things and be saved. And then, like I said, if you read in Romans 9 through 11 and you see Paul's articulation of what this means, Paul says... That I don't want, I, I, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of the mystery that's happening right now. He's describing what is happening currently in this church age. And so he describes it and he says, and he says, I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation. The same thing he told the Corinthians when you look at Israel is the same thing he's telling the Romans when you look at Israel. God has not forgotten his people. Uh, God is still going to fulfill every promise he made to Abraham and to David, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to David, and to all, all the covenants must happen. He says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until the church has served its purpose and, the, and those amongst the nations have come into the family of God and to the body of Christ. And then, so all Israel will be saved Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, speaking specifically of the nation of Israel. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's a new covenant promise made to the nation of Israel. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. Currently, as they fight against the truth of Jesus Christ, do not submit to him as Messiah and say that he is not the chosen one of God. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers, the covenant he's specifically referring to here with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God cannot go back on his word. He must fulfill his word the way he said it. And it's just a reminder to us as the church to always remember that. We are not Israel, but we are saved in the same way that Israelites are being saved right now as the church, by the same Savior, the same blood, the same grace, the same faith. 
But there is a future. There is a future repentance for the nation as a whole of Israel. There's a future restoration for the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ must sit on David's throne in Jerusalem in a, 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 with a, a, a new temple that will be made and a, a, a new kingdom that will be built. It has to happen. And you, you can look at it and be like, well, that's impossible for that to happen. But again, if you go read Ezekiel 38, you know that, I mean, it, he'll raise them from the dead and march them right back into the land. There's nothing that can stop God from fulfilling his word that he has sworn to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, uh, and what Jesus Christ ratified on the cross in the new covenant. All that being said, I just think that's something important. Right out the gate, he's talking to all of Israel, and he's speaking to the nation as a whole. And that's always the usage of it in the Bible. So as you read the Old Testament, you can see that. After that, so these are the words that Moses spoke to the nation of Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. We already talked about across the Jordan. We're on the plains of Moab. We looked at some pictures of that, but I have some more pictures up here to kind of give you a visual because it helps. So here is where Israel is. They've completed their 40 years of wandering. The Jordan River is right here. The Dead Sea is right here. And they're somewhere on the plains of Moab right here about to cross over. Uh, they'll, they'll stop in Gilgal and they'll all get circumcised and they've got to rest for a few days. And then they'll go and take Jericho. So that's, that's where they're at. And on these plains over here, there's mountains behind them, there's mountains over here, and there's plains right here um, in the Jordan Rift Valley. That's where Moses is in the nation. That's where the nation is gathered. Uh, the Lord will you know, part the Jordan River or stop the water up at Adam, and then they'll come over, and then they'll, they'll go into the land. Um, but that's where they're at. Uh, when it talks about the wilderness, you know, I read this as a kid, well, even when I read this as an adult, until I understood what was going on. The wilderness does not mean a forest. It always means the desert. So wilderness, every time you read it in the Old Testament, think desert, because that's where they're at. They're in the middle of a dry desert. And in fact, that next thing he says, it says that they, uh, they're across the Jordan, plains of Moab, in the desert, in the Arabah. Uh, that is also an important word. So the Arabah is basically what we now call uh, the Jordan Rift Valley. So Araba literally means dry land. So it's, it's a desert uh, region. It's a desert area. And it's, it's basically a loosely defined geographic area in the Negev Desert, uh, south of the Dead Sea Basin, which forms part of the border between Israel and the West Jordan to the east. Um, the biblical understanding of the, the uh, Araba uh, is basically um, the, the entire length of what we now call the Jordan Rift Valley. I know some of you guys have been to Israel, and you can not only visualize this, but maybe even explain it better than me. I'm learning through uh, just words and pictures. But, um, but, but basically, this, this area runs north to south um, from the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. Here, I got it over here. So this is the Sea of Galilee. Um, this is the Jordan Rift there. But you still have a valley that goes all the way to this tip of the Red Sea, which is down here. And the whole thing is called the Jordan Rift Valley. This is where the Israelites, a lot of their wandering is in this area. And then they're coming up this way past the Dead Sea to the plains of Moab to cross over into the Promised Land. Does that make sense? And so awful walking through. Um, I know people that have been there that have said, if you just spend three minutes out in that desert, you understand why they grumbled and complained. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so uh, I have not had that experience. But you can understand, it's just a dry, arid uh, desert. Uh, you got the Salt Sea, which nothing can live in the Salt City or Sea 
Um, and then, uh, and like I said, then here you have lush, beautiful uh, Jordan River that runs up into the Sea of Galilee, and the, apparently this is beautiful up here. But they're right here, and uh, so when you read the Araba, every time, and that's going to come up a lot in the Old Testament, you can think about those kind of pictures. Uh, this is just a, a person that did a computer-generated visual of what it would be. But it makes sense because, actually, we'll talk about that too. There would be mountains on both sides. They'd be going up the valley, and that's supposed to be the glory of God and the pillar of cloud leading them through the desert. So that's kind of a cool picture. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, understanding all that, um, and this is another thing just to, to help you as you read the, the Old Testament. Actually, I didn't tell you about the Arabah. It includes the Jordan River Valley, the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, uh, itself and what is today called the Arava Valley. It's basically about 103 miles in length. Um, and uh, the Sea of the Arava, you'll see this in the Old Testament, that's always referring to, if you see Sea of the Arava or the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea. So every time you see any of those descriptions, it's talking about that body of water. If you see the, the Sea of uh, Chinnereth, that's the Sea of Galilee. In the Old Testament, they call it the Sea of Chinnereth, but it helps you to understand, okay, that's talking about the Sea of Galilee. These things help me. I'm reading, I'm like, oh, that's the same place that Jesus was walking. I mean, it's the same body of water, just called by a different name. Uh, Isaiah 35, this is cool. So Isaiah 35 is a prophecy of Christ. It's talking about the, the millennial kingdom of Christ when Christ is here on earth in Isaiah. But it talks about this area, and it says, the wilderness, the desert, and the, um, well, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom. So this arid place that has never produced uh, plant life under the reign of Jesus Christ on this planet, it will blossom. Uh, and, it ta- and this talks about the things that this king, this Messiah will do. Uh, you can go back and read the whole thing. Isaiah has a lot of prophecies about the millennial reign of Christ. There's still the existence of sin. There's still the existence of death. But there's also the existence of God on earth reigning as king. And there's peace on earth. And there's uh, the lush plant life and healing and things like that. It says, The lame will leap like deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. The waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Again, so you, you see, like, understanding what that means makes even that prophecy of Christ mean so much more. The redeemed will walk there. People are going to live there. It's an unlivable, uninhabitable place. But there will, be, there will be life there, and the ransom of the Lord will return, talking about to Israel, and come with joyful shouting to Zion. So again, this is talking about the Messiah reigning on earth, the people of Israel returning to the land. They're living in this land. But it's not just the little nation that we know from the, the, first, uh, the first time they occupied the land. This is the whole land, which we'll talk about in a second. The whole land that God described to give to the nation of Israel has never been occupied by the nation of Israel. The closest that ever happened was during Solomon's reign. He may have had jurisdiction over all the land, but it was not called Israel, and Israel did not inhabit the whole thing. God has never fulfilled his promise to Abraham in the way he stated it, which either means, one, God exaggerated, overstated what he was able to do, or it just hasn't happened yet, but it has to. So we'll talk about that. Uh, when it talks about uh, Suf here, so in the Arabah, so you understand where the Arabah is, opposite of Suf, that is one of those words that, Basically is unknown, but it probably is talking about the Red Sea. Yam Suf is called is is mean Yam is sea. Uh, Suf is means reeds. In Exodus two three, it talks about the the Red Sea being the sea of reeds. That's literally what it says, and it calls it Yam Suf. That's the only other usage of this word, which probably means Red Sea. It actually makes sense if you look at the map, uh, because if 
is the Red Sea, then what he's basically saying, he's describing the whole Araba all the way up from the uh, Sea of Galilee to the tip of the sea. Now, when you look at that, in my mind, I'm like, Red Sea, I thought that was over by Egypt, you know, where they crossed over the Red Sea. But if you look at a map of the Red Sea, it branches out right here. The, Israel, the Israelites from Egypt would have crossed over the Red Sea here. But here, the Red Sea hits the bottom of the Jordan Valley. And again, just seeing the map goes, oh, that makes so much more sense. So most likely, when you read this, I think the best way to understand it is Israel is in the plains of Moab, in the Arabah, in that desert, uh, opposite of the Red Sea, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizabah. By the way, we don't know where any of those places are. There's been no archaeological findings of those exact name places. They were probably places that were on the plains of Moab. And then when Israel took over that, they probably either renamed or that could have been part of uh, them destroying those cities as they fought Og and Sion and all that sort of stuff. We don't know. But those are just place names that probably would have made sense when this was being written and probably would have made sense to the generation that is receiving this text. But we don't know where those places are. But, but we do know with precision where they're at. And then the timing. It's 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Um, and again, just to kind of help you to understand what's going on there, basically, uh, the way of Mount Seir is it's just, a, it's just a roadway up through the Jordan Rift Valley with these mountains of Seir. Seir is the, the, the kingdom of Edom, which is Esau's territory. So this is land that God gave to Esau, which was Jacob's brother uh, way, way back in the day. So Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob was the chosen one, chosen one through which the promise would come. Esau was not chosen by God, but God gave Esau uh, a, a territory. Uh, it became the land of Edom, which is just another uh, uh, description of his name. It means red. And, uh, and this, the, mount, uh, the mountains of Seir are uh, in Esau's territory. And again, if you go read the narrative of the Israelites coming through there, uh, God told them, don't, don't mess with the, the Edomites. These are your brothers, and they didn't, they didn't fight with, uh, with the people of, uh, of Edom during that time. But, but basically, they're, they're trekking along the Jordan Rift Valley with these mountains on their right as they're coming up to the plains of Moab. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm sorry, this is just the, the first description. As they come up to Kadesh Barnea. So this is a good, again, understanding of what's going on here. They left Sinai, they're coming up, and as they, as they head up this way past the, the Red Sea, and they're coming up through here, here's Edom and, and the Mount of Seir and where Seir is. They come up somewhere in here, they got Kadesh Barnea. This is where they would have gone to land. This is where they would have entered and they would have began taking the land, or God would have begun giving them the land. Uh, but again, the whole story of the 12 spies, the spies being, bring back a bad report, and they leave from there and they wander the desert for 40 years. And the second Time they come back up and they're going to be Moab to go over this way. Does that make sense? Was that too much? Okay. <laughs> so again, I think if you, if you understand the place names, it helps make sense as you read this. So Seir is the mountainous area running along the east side of the Valley of the Araba uh, from the Dead Sea uh, to the Red Sea. Um, uh, Esau lived in this territory. And this actually becomes much more significant in Deuteronomy 2. So we'll wait until next week to talk more about Seir and what Israel was doing there. But basically, they're camping on the plains of Moab. They're right outside, and that gives you an understanding of how they got there. The next thing he says, um, and, and by the way, Deuteronomy 1 through 6 is going to go a little slow because there's just so much there. 
when we start getting to a lot of the laws, we're going to fly because, like, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But I feel like this week and next week, we'll probably look at Deuteronomy 1 and get through this. The next thing he says, so we know where they're at. Uh, we know uh, what, how long they're there, and we know what Moses is doing there, giving them these expositions. In verses 3 through 5, it says, In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, so this is the end of the judgment of God, the wandering in the desert, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded to give to them. After he had defeated Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, king of uh, Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth in Edrai, <laughs> across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying. So again, these first five verses give you all of the precision uh, data that you need to understand who is saying this, when he's doing it, what God has been doing, where the Israelites are, why they're there. Uh, again, so every time they read this, it would be a reminder to the nation uh, of what the Lord has said. I set a timer, by the way. I'm going to let you guys out at 1210 because we got to go back over there for Shane's thing. So we're just going to move until then, and we'll do a part two next week. So, like I said, uh, this, we know Deuteronomy had to have been written somewhere between 1407-1406 B.C. Uh, because that's the timing of the, the entry into the Promised Land. Um, we know about Sion and Og. We talked about that in our overview, and we'll talk more about it next week. They actually come up in Deuteronomy uh, 2 and 3 more specifically. So for right now, just know these are two kings of kingdoms that were on the plains of Moab, on the other side of the Jordan River, not on the west side where Israel is going to take the land. And that became the territory that um, uh, Manasseh, who is it? I'm blanking on the, the two and a half tribes. Half tribe Manasseh and... Who is it? Reuben, I think. And Anyway, two and a half tribes were given this land of Sion and of Og. Uh, I'll go back and, and, and uh, look and see who those tribes were. But we're going to get into those details next week. The, the land of Moab that they're sitting in, you have a lot of information about Moab from Numbers 22 to Numbers 36. Uh, this is the setting for where uh, Balak came out. He hired Balaam to come and prophesy against Israel. Uh, Balaam kept prophesying for Israel. This is also where Balaam led Balak uh, with, with counsel uh, to how God would judge his people if they engaged in idolatry and immorality, which they did. They call that the sins of Peor. Uh, and we had the final judgment of the first generation. So on the plains of Moab, a lot has happened. So a lot has happened on the plains of Moab prior to these sermons. Uh, there's been the, 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 the end of the first generation, the, the final rebellion of the people of God, the final act of idolatry, if you want to say that, and, uh, and, and now the first generation is gone. The only two left from the first generation that will actually walk into the promised land are Caleb and Joshua. Uh, even Moses won't enter in. He'll be able to see it. Uh, we also, at the very end of Numbers, saw the numbering and the instruction for the new generation. So again, it's not that Deuteronomy is their only instruction. It's just that the Deuteronomy is the renewal of the covenant that they are to do every seven years. It's a renewal here when they cross the land. Joshua will renew the covenant again. And this is something they should do over and over and over again. But God has renumbered uh, the new generation. Uh, they, he's given them instruction. And now Moses is expounding this law that God gave to them. And uh, when it talks here about... Um, uh, Moses expounding the law at the very end of this verse. Moses undertook to expound this law. The word means to explain it with clarity and precision. That's what Moses is doing. He's taking what God gave to them in Mount Sinai and he's explaining it to the next generation with precision and clarity so they know very clearly 
what their role and the commands of God, what their role is in obedience to God and what his commands are. And that's what we're striving to do here at this church is we're striving to read his word, to let it say what it says, and then we come underneath what he says. Uh, that's our, our hope. Um, we're, we're not trying to, to fight against any theology, and we're not trying to, to convince people that we're right. We're trying to go, what does God say, and what does that mean? And then how do we, as his people, submit to his word? Um, I think that's always the desire of any uh, uh, expositor or any preacher um, so that's what we're trying to do with Deuteronomy. That's what Moses is doing with Deuteronomy, which is actually unbelievable. I mean, think about this. You've got God's word delivered to man, and then you've got God commenting or expounding his own word to us to make sure that we understand it with clarity and precision. Now, this is the greatest sermon <laughs> that you can ever get. Jesus does the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount, right? He basically takes the Old Testament, and he expounds the Old Testament, and we have God himself as man telling us exactly what he meant when he articulated it the first time to the people of Israel. Anytime you got God commenting on his own word, that is like, yeah, you got to listen into that. So that's what Deuteronomy is. So if there was many misunderstanding, God's going, this is what I meant for the, the second generation. Uh, it's not a repetition of everything he said. It's a divine, inerrant, infallible exposition of his covenant to Israel. So that's a good way to look at Deuteronomy. This is an exposition of the Mosaic Covenant so that his people knew exactly what he said and what he meant and how to obey him and follow him. Um, When God explains his commands, it's wonderful because we gain an exact certain accuracy of his intent and his meaning, which again, that's what exposition is. It's making sense of his word. It's explaining his word with accuracy, precision, and clarity. That's what we want. That's what the children of God want. I don't care what you think about his word. I want to know what he said and exactly what he meant. Fully knowing that we're, we're fallible, fully knowing that we're all going to die with bad theology. There's, there's holes in all of us. There's sin in all of us. But we're striving for that clarity and precision. And that's what Deuteronomy is. And that's what makes Deuteronomy awesome. And it's God's word. <laughs> we want to understand exactly what God meant, what Moses intended, what the Israelites were supposed to know. That's the meaning of Scripture. And once we understand the meaning, that's when you get the application. You don't read the application into the meaning. You let it mean what it means, and then you go, so how does that apply? Some of it doesn't apply at all because you're not Israel and you're not under the law. But some of the implications of that law are very important to our life. Does that make sense? And so I think with a good hermeneutic, too, you also have clarity on how then to apply things like this that were actually given to the nation of Israel, not given to the church. And you can distinguish that and still come out of it with a ton of meat and a ton of truth. All right, so that's the first part. This is an exposition of Moses. We know where he's at. Uh, Let's do this part, and then we'll pick up the rest of it and finish chapter 1 next week, all right? So the next few verses, basically, he begins to talk about uh, the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to call this part the promised land to Abraham. Land, 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 land. You know, we talked about this. When you see land in the Old Testament, every time you see, not every time you see the word land, but when he talks about the land or, uh, you know, the, the, the land I gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jake, whatever, it just every time you're seeing land, 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 the land, you should be going, he's talking about that covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that he made with Abraham. In Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 8, 
he says this, the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb. So he's, again, think about the context. Moses speaking to the second generation, reminding them of what God did. Horeb is this, it's just another term for Mount Sinai. So when you see Horeb or Sinai, it's talking about the same mountain. Horeb, Sinai, the mountain, the mountain of God, all the same place. Uh, the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb at Sinai saying, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah. We know where that is now. In the hill country and the lowlands, so up on those hills and down in the valleys uh, and in the Negev, which is the desert, and by the seacoast. He's describing the whole area, the land of the Canaanites, the whole thing, and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That's way up there in Syria. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. So here, he's basically saying, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the covenant I made with Abraham. I'm giving this to you. So it's, it's not theirs to reject like their parents did. He's saying, I'm giving it to you. Your job is to go and to take it. And so what he's talking about here is the Abrahamic covenant. And again, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, Peter Craigie in his uh, commentary says this, The renewal of the covenant described in Deuteronomy, uh, the prologue recalls not only the covenant's history, but also the ability of the Lord of the covenant to fulfill his promise. You've got to remember that. See, God is giving them the land. It's his gift to give, and he'll give it. Uh, but then he requires them to submit to him in obedience and to take it. Does that make sense? For them to not take it is to reject the command of God, is to not to submit to his authority, like Shane was talking about in there. They don't have the, they don't have the, the freedom, if you want to say it that way, to be like, no, we'll, we'll take some more land, or you keep your land. Like Their job is to obey the Lord and take the land. Uh, it, what God has done in the past, he could continue to do in the future. There is thus a presentation of a faithful God whose demand was for a faithful people. It's a good way to think about Deuteronomy. God is going to faithfully do what he promised Abraham. He has to. God can't go back on his word. No matter how faithless or unfaithful they are, God must do this. He will do this. But he's calling his people to be faithful and to obey him. And not only go in to take the land, but to be his people, to be his chosen nation, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a light to the world. And so he tells them uh, that, that they are going to, uh, to go and to take this land. We talk about the Mosaic Covenant. Again, well, I mean, uh, the, the, he, when he says the Lord was speaking at Horeb, uh, he's referring to their end, the end of the time there at Sinai. They were there for almost a year, um, and that's what Exodus, Leviticus, and the beginning of Numbers is all about. They're at Sinai, and the Lord is instructing them from the mountain, and Moses is going up there, getting the Ten Commandments, all of that. Exodus 19, 1 through 6, describes them making it to this mountain. Israel camped in front of the mountain. They were there at the mountain. God showed up on the mountain. God spoke audibly from the mountain and said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. It belongs to him. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is the beginning of what he describes. We, we call it the Mosaic covenant. Uh, he gives them the Ten Commandments. He makes them a nation. And he says, here is your law, both for how to run your government, how to worship him, and the character and morals of the people and how they are to live. Now, when he talks about the land given to Abraham, he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. This precedes the Mosaic covenant. This is an unconditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant that God made with him at Sinai, it is, if you obey, I will do this. If you disobey, I will do this. 
It's a conditional covenant based on their faithfulness or their unfaithfulness. The Abrahamic covenant is not conditioned upon anything that any man does. It's conditioned upon God and his faithfulness. This unilateral covenant was made with Abraham while he was asleep, and God told him these things and passed through the sacrifice and made this covenant with himself. In Genesis 13, this is the Abrahamic covenant. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Not for 200 years, not for 200 years, and then for a little bit longer, half of that piece of land for you know, a few hundred more years. That's not what God said. I'm going to give you a big piece of land, and I'm giving it to the nation of Israel forever. In Exodus, uh, or I'm sorry, in Genesis 15, he reiterates this covenant. It says, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. That's talking about their time in Egypt. They'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. I will judge the nation whom they serve. That's what happened in the whole Exodus coming out of Egypt. They will come out with many possessions, which is exactly what happened. As for you, you'll die, uh, but you'll be buried at a good old age. The fourth generation will return right here. And that's what they're doing. They're about to return right there. That's, Moses is, is, they're going to cross the Jordan and be right where Abraham was. It says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In giving them the land, he's also judging the people of the land of Canaan because of their uh, idolatry, immorality, and all of that. And a lot of that stuff is described uh, in the first four books. It says, it came about when the sun had set, very dark. Behold, appeared a smoking oven and flaming torch which passed between the pieces. That's the presence of God passing between the sacrifice. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. And then he sets boundary markers. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So from Egypt to, to Syria. And then uh, it, the, the, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadamite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, all those people, those are the people of Canaan. Everything from the edge of Egypt to the Euphrates River, all the way over this entire piece of land, I'm giving to you and to your descendants forever. That's what he promised Abraham. Uh, again, in uh, Genesis 17, same thing. I'm making this covenant between me and your descendants after you. It's an everlasting covenant. This land, the land of Canaan, will be an everlasting possession. He, he reiterates the covenant to Isaac, the same thing. He reiterates the covenant to Jacob, the same thing. And so when we talk about the land, and when Moses, or when, um, Moses is saying this to the people of Israel, he's talking about this covenant that God made with the people of Israel. And in Genesis 15, you have the, the actual land markers that he is telling them about. And if you read over here in Deuteronomy, you see the same sort of thing. You see, um, where's it at? Uh, yeah, you see him talk about, uh, I have to finish this up next week. We got to go. Um, <laughs> But basically, he's, he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm here, I'm giving you all of this land. And I, I can't find the slide. But he gives the place markers again here in Deuteronomy to show them this is the land uh, that, I am, that I am giving to you. So we'll stop there, Abrahamic Covenant. We'll pick it back up next week where he, they leave from Horeb. They go through Kadesh Barnea, um, and they send out the 12 spies. But uh, also, I'd like to do some questions throughout this because I'm sure there's going to be questions.